0: Welcome to the cross border interview podcast, a podcast about getting out from behind the keyboard and just talking each week. We invite a guest or two to sit down and talk about their life and their work. I'm Christopher Brown, your host, and this is the cross border interview podcast featuring Kevin Allen. dive right into this as quickly as possible because I assume that you want to relax after your long day at work. So thank you very much for doing this, Kevin. Um, I start off all my interviews with the same question, different uh, context to the question, but same uh, uh, venue uh, along the lines of what I usually want to ask all my interviewees is where, when did you learn When did you want to learn about history in your life? When was the earliest moment that you can look back at and say, you know what, I wanted to learn about history. I wanted to keep preserve the history that we have in this country alive.
1: Yeah, I sort of fell into history as an older person. One thing I guess I can say was I was always interested in my own family's history, like the sort of genealogy, like stories of my grandfather's grandfather, that kind of thing. But I never studied history sort of actively in school or university. And um, it was only um, just a few years ago, 2012, where I I actually asked my parents, who are also Calgarians, um, where gay people were hanging out uh, in the 50s and 60s, and... My mom joked there were no gay people back then, ha, ha, ha. And then my father later confessed that evening that he knew about the palace hotel, the tavern on the lower level. And so that got me really just curious about um, gay people's lives in Calgary before I was born. And so I say I fell down this rabbit hole and became a historian. And, and so, um, and now I'm just generally interested in Calgary's story Um the larger story of Calgary and all the threads that make up uh, Calgary's history. Um, So I guess just in the past decade is the short answer.
0: Did you expect to be where you are now, looking back at 2012 and say, I've now written a book. It's uh, one of the most... it, it it is well uh, written i've read it and i can say that it uh, it changed my view on what calgary was because i'm from ontario i i came out to uh, alberta as the wow. gay, gay kid who thought You're going to move to Alberta and you're going to be ridiculed because there was no gay guys there and they would all just want to run away. But when you pick up this book and you realize that we do have a huge history in this province of gay culture and even the gay movement in Canada, the LGBT movement in Canada, how how did this book come about is what I'm trying to get at here, because looking at it, it looks like it probably took a long time and getting people to open up about a dark time in our history is probably hard.
1: Yeah, so I had no intention of writing a book when I started. (laughs) exploring um, Calgary's gay history. I got a, so to sort of answer my curiosity, I got this small grant. We were the, um, there was a program called the Cultural Capitals of Canada. In 2012, Calgary was the cultural capital. And I got a little grant uh, at Calgary Outlink, which is our peer support center in the city, to do some work on the history and do like a public presentation, uh, publish my findings, uh, sort of virtually. And um, I did the, exactly that. I started age profiling people at Pride and anyone who had gray, gray hair, I said, are you from Calgary, can I talk to you? And I freaked out a lot of old people in the city. Uh, but eventually I sort of uh, won their trust and they started sharing their stories because our stories aren't very well archived in museums and libraries and things like that. And um, again, just fell down this rabbit hole. But the whole project came so engaging to me because it's my, it's my community's human rights struggle, and uh, it's also in my city and that was really important to me to um, share these stories and then also to save and preserve these stories. So uh, I got a lot of positive regard from the community. I did a very successful Kickstarter campaign for the book in 2014. Um, and so um, there's a bit of positive feedback I need to go deeper, and it's been very rewarding.
0: What was the biggest surprise to you? When you when you start start off in a research project like this, I've done a few research projects in my life. You you expect to know what the end result is going to be no matter. You expect to have an idea. And it's going, a hypothesis is made and it's going to be proven. Were, was your first initial hypothesis of what gay culture was like in the 60s and 70s or even before then? Did it come uh, true or were there surprises to you in, in your research?
1: Yeah, I can honestly say I didn't know very much about gay history in Calgary when I started this project, so there were a lot of surprises. And my my initial impulse was just to find out where the gay people hung out, you know, and um, a little bit of the sort of character of their lives. And then when I started meeting people and interviewing them in their 70s and 80s, and in one case, 90s, and hearing their stories and their struggles, or their lack of struggles, the sort of sanitized version that they would tell me, um, it just got so interesting, and um, their lives were a lot harder in many in many ways. Um, just as I'm, I'm going to be fifty this year, uh, so I'm, I remember kind of coming out thirty years ago and what Calgary was like then, and the sort of gay bashing and homophobia. But there, that level of sort of societal pressure uh, and marginalization in the community was um, that much more intense, and so the people that um, gathered and started community organizations and started the first clubs and uh, did the first legal challenges uh, were just you know that much more heroic and so um I really uh, 'm losing the thread of the question but um it 's just been so rewarding to tell their stories
0: so the The question I have to ask, and this is where i 'm sort of getting at here is. Do you think today, and I I hate to use this word, but today's youth, today's LGBT youth know the struggles that uh, the men and women went through in the 50s and the 60s for us to live so openly? And was that a reasoning for you to write the book as well, to get that message out to the younger generations to say, you know what, while we're out marching on the streets about pride every year in September you have to realize that people came before us who couldn't do this.
1: Yeah, I mean, young people want to know their history, though, and I think, I mean, the LGBTQ2 community is interesting because we're not sort of a, we're not a community based on sort of family origin or ethnicity. We we all come from different families and different backgrounds, and yet we somehow then Merge. So who are our elders? Who tells our stories? And I do gay history walks in downtown Calgary, and I get a lot of young queer people coming on these walks, and they're just really wanting to connect to previous generations and and feel that sense of, family, I guess, for lack of a better better word. Um, and that said, uh, there is a lot of um, ignorance <laughs> on a number of topics out there. But um, people don't often know their history. And most Calgarians don't know the, his, the history of our community. A, a really common response from straight people who read this book is, I lived in this city and had no idea that this was going on there were these clubs there was this whole other community like I mean gay people were mostly sort of erased from mainstream uh, society up until really AIDS which kind of sort of dragged us out of our closets, um, and, and made people aware of us. So, um, yeah, our motivation was to, uh, educate people, uh, who were interested, but also to preserve stories. And then coming from Ontario yourself, one of the, I mean, I have that sort of Western chip on my shoulder insofar as that the sort of dominant queer narrative in the country often comes from Toronto, in montreal and vancouver and uh they gloss over huge swaths of the country and their queer history and um we were here doing important activist work in alberta and um i wanted to make sure that uh some of our stories were preserved in that larger narrative
0: well when i when i married my husband he i when i moved down here and i married my husband i asked him is there like a uh, in Toronto, there's Church and Wesley, which is the biggest gay street uh, besides Christopher Street out in Vancouver, if I'm not mistaken. But know, it's wow. one of those it, it's one of those streets where you know if you go there, you you will feel safe. And when I got here, I asked my husband, I said, "Is there a location in Calgary that that's like that?" And he couldn't come up with an answer. As the former minister of culture, I kind of hit him because he didn't know his own history in this uh, city. So when I yeah. read your book. And I read that, like, you have uh, the one uh, one part that I really liked was Club Carousel. The history about that. Can you just talk about the history of Club Carousel? Because I don't think most people would know what that is.
1: Yeah, and so Club Carousel was in the Beltline. And so the Beltline was our sort of neighborhood of concentration. Although it never sort of had the same street presence maybe as church and Wellesley Uh, club carousel was um I I call it the sort of dawning of the gay community in Calgary it was a a gay club formed by um gay men and women uh private members club you had to uh, be a member and they did a lot of control at the door so no one but gay people were allowed in and um uh it was the first sort of organized Place where elders tell me they could let their hair down. There were there were drinking places before in the fifties and sixties that were sort of mixed. There then they had a tolerant manager, and the you know the gay man or the gay women would drink on one side, and and the straights would drink on the other. But this was completely their space, and it was run by them and and managed by them. And um, uh, was there ever?
0: Was there Sorry? ever an incident with police brutality? Because you, you, when you talk, when you look back in Toronto's history, you you, you can go to the definition of police brutality, of uh, police walking into clubs, knowing that they're potentially LGBT uh, two clubs, dragging them out, arresting them. Did that happen in Calgary?
1: Yeah, well, it's mixed. I mean, our relationship with the police is very complicated. Um, sometimes they protected us. Sometimes they were the opposite of protecting us. Um, so the police tried to shut down club carousel on its opening weekend. They came down and, and uh, charged the, um, the members that they had were operating a sort of cabaret without a license. And they ended up going to court in their first few months that they opened. And the police, you know, told the judge that he saw men dancing with men and women dancing with women. And, uh, but, um, In between the time that they got charged and they went to court, they had a really sympathetic lawyer in town, Harvey Gitter, who um, had them form as a a charitable society and a private members club. And once they had that license, they sort of had the cover of um, uh, doing good works and uh, the judge threw the case out. And to be fair um Lois Zabo, who I become friends with who's in her eighties and was one of the last living founder of the club um said the police would kind of keep an eye on the streets they they met on Fridays and Saturdays at the club um and there were some sort of sympathetic cops that would try and like control any violence that were that was happening in the in the, around the club, but that said, you know there's lots of i we can go through tons and tons of stories about police uh, entrapment and um towards the gay community, particularly the gay men, uh, in Calgary. But so, I mean, each officer was sort of a different kettle of fish when it came to the gay community.
0: You, you talked about how during your research for this book, uh, when you were talking to the, uh, the, um, Calgarians who were 80 in their nineties and their seventies, that they would be able to let their hair down, that they would be able to let their hair down in club carousel. Um, <laughs> At first you probably don't want to let put your hair uh, let your hair down because you are unsure who in here is going to potentially squeal on you. When you were talking to these people for the book, did they portray that to you that while they felt comfortable, they were still apprehensive
1: about even going out to the club carousel? Yeah, I mean, the the founders were really Um, their mandate was to kind of create a safe space, you know. And so they worked really hard on that. And it became like an informal social services agency, too. Like they talked about, um, you know, finding there were a lot of teenagers who tried to get into Club Carousel because, you know, they were homeless or something. They'd been kicked out from their parents. And so it became this sort of informal social services agency. And I think they did a pretty good job of, Maintaining that safe space. That said, uh, um, there's there was violence directed towards the community back then, and um, there's cases, of, um, you know, suicides and murders and sort of hustler entrapment stuff where there'd be someone who pick pick up a gay man and then sort of rob him, sort of thing that would be happening sort of as outside of the club. So. Um, there was still that there was
0: always that apprehensive Um, the other area in the book that I I love and I didn't know this and this is how bad and I'm a political fan I did not know the reason why uh, homosexuality was decriminalizing Canada was because of a Calgarian and I don't think most most people know that people know Trudeau said uh, what happens in the uh, bedroom is not the place of the government Uh, so Everett Clippert, right? Correct Everett Clipper, how did you? How did this come about? How did you find out about this? Because it, it, it is not common knowledge, even a, like in gay history books across Canada, it is not common knowledge. So, how did this come about for your his research?
1: Well, there's there were some lucky confluences that came together, but I mean, Everett Clipper was front page news in Calgary in the 60s. So, um, I hadn't done, I hadn't uh, gone too far into the project before I found out about the 1969 I mean it's it was big news in its day in the 60s the omnibus bill bill C-115-69 and the decriminalization or partial decriminalization of homosexuality. And then you, you find Everett Clippert in the court records and then you read the story and you read the articles in the newspapers from the 60s. And he's this gentle guy who, you know, wouldn't harm a flea, but he's going to be incarcerated for life. And sort of the sense of injustice um, makes it a really uh, compelling story. And then I started writing about it and it started getting pick, picked up by some local and then national journalists. And uh, it was 2015, uh, I got this phone call, um, I actually run elections, so I, it was I think it was during the federal election, um, I'm a returning officer. I got this phone call right in the middle of the election from Donald Clippert, who was Everett's nephew, and he said, where did you find out this information about my uncle? And because uh, there was a, a story about um, um, the Cal- there was a Calgary bus driver, I guess in twenty fifteen, who wouldn't ride drive the rainbow bus. And so this clever journalist came across my blog and found about another bus driver and made the connection between these bus drivers in Calgary. And that's how Donald um, found me. And then that sort of opened up the window to uh, Everett's family life and his, and so um, that was a treasure trove of, um, of uh, Everett's stuff. And Everett himself, always shied away from the limelight and was uh ashamed of his criminal his criminal past for, for being gay and he eventually married a woman uh, when he got out of jail and just really wanted everything to go away and so his generation of the family and himself like tried to minimize everything so i think that's one of the reasons that the story died was they tried to kill it as much as possible because different um gay organizations approached Everett because of this illegal um, battle and he would never have anything to do with it. So there was, before my research project, there was not, I could not find a single picture of Everett in existence. And and I remember people when I would contact me occasionally through the history project and say do you have a photo of Everett? I'd be like no. But then once I got the trust of his family, then all this stuff came about. And it had the delightful effect, I feel like I've got one small footnote in Canadian history in that John Ibbotson of the Globe and Mail did a big expose in 2017 about Everett. Uh, he came out to Calgary and interviewed me and uh, interviewed some of the Clippert family. And then, um, you know, petitioned the prime minister to pardon Everett and to do the purge. And so the the LGBTQ2 apology in 2017 is there's there's sort of a chain of events that happened there, which I'm very proud of.
0: So for those who uh, you mentioned it a bit. So Everett was a bus driver here in Calgary.
1: Oh right. I'm sorry. Yeah, I didn't give you the the actual Everett story. So, yeah, he, he was he grew up. He grew up in Calgary. Uh, and born was in Saskatchewan, right? Right. He moved here when he was two. He's born in 1926, uh, and sort of um, dropped out of school in grade eight. Had a bunch of different jobs. Eventually, in his 20s, got a job as a bus driver and was a very popular bus driver. Um, but the police uh, would found out uh, he he was having an affair with a young man. whose father found out about the affair and called the police and. <laughs> Um, the police interrogated him in his home and they found his little black book which was his dating history and there were 18 names of men in the book and he got charged with 18 counts of gross indecency and sent to jail for um, four years Do you know if the other it? 18 men did as well? No, no, no no. Um, uh, I don't think they were even contacted um, I mean a lot of people who were getting arrested in the 50s and 60s for this crime really just wanted to like have it over as soon as possible. So Everett pled guilty. He, um, uh, he was front page news. He was, he came from a a Baptist family. Uh, they went to Crescent Heights Baptist church just on the North Hill. And so so his story
0: doesn't doesn't really make it national until he's, until he's in the Northwest Territories, correct?
1: Right. So Because the, he gets arrested he, he, for a second time. He gets arrested a second time because um, there's an arson case where he's working in Pine, Point. Um, and the local RCMP officer looks for anyone who has a criminal record. And, of course, he has jail time. And he brings him in for questioning and allegedly intimidates him. Uh, and says he's going to get charged with arson unless he confesses about his sexual activities in the Northwest Territories. And Everett, unwisely, I think, confessed to having had sex with four men up there. And so he went to jail again. And then the Crown went one step further and said he was a dangerous sexual offender and should be incarcerated for life. And so in the Supreme Court in 67, agreed with that lower court ruling and said he should he should be incarcerated for life and that's that caused some outrage they thought uh, some people progressives at the time thought it was too severe a punishment for someone who was just gay and that's where the quote comes from uh, Pierre Trudeau the state has no place in the bedrooms of the nation
0: so when you were talking to his family did did, did his family well, well you said they were apprehensive talking about it beforehand but you gained their trust when you were talking to their his family did they want to tell his story the proper way? Did they want to sit down and actually say he was a good guy? He like what he was accused of
1: today. We, we look at it and say it's, that yeah, thing? so it's a generational thing. So it was Everett and his siblings he had nine, eight siblings. So there were nine of them in the family is when that generation died, then the family said they wanted to talk about it and have his, um, sort of, um, History exonerated, or sort of um, his criminality um, changed. I'm actually working with the family right now on um, getting Everett's criminal record expunged, because uh, as, par- as part of the apology, um, anyone who was um, who has criminal charges from earlier decades for gross indecency can apply to get it expunged. And interestingly. Um, uh, the lawyer who's doing it who's doing it pro bono his name's Brian Crane was the one who defended Everett in the Supreme Court in sixty seven He's ninety years old and like a workaholic and wow I met with him in Ottawa I did a little book tour. Earlier this year, thank goodness, before COVID, lockdown, yep. and uh, uh, had emailed him because I wanted to meet him, and um, said the family was interested, and he said I'll do it. He said it would be nice because that was the beginning beginning of his career, defending Everett, and then so he's ninety now. He, he feels like it's a nice bookend, wow. and he's going to donate all his um, files about Everett to the uh, the archives, which is Toronto's um, Canadian gay, lesbian, the biggest archives we have in Canada. I said, your records are probably important for future historians. And so it was a lovely, it's a lovely thing that's happening right now, I guess.
0: No, but he's not the only one in Alberta that sort of, uh, not sparked, but you wrote about in this book. You talk about a few other gentlemen uh, who worked with Indigenous communities as well, because we always forget that uh, sometimes the white bubble that some people live in, there is an, a larger expansion to that. So can you talk about how, uh, and I forget the gentleman's name and it's not coming to me and I... F- Jean LaRue. There you go. Talk about how he influenced
1: the indigenous communities with uh, Calgarians as well. Yeah, that said, That was one of the most special stories I stumbled across. I was in the Glenbow archives, digging around, rooting around, as one does when you're looking for and haystacks, and I came across this 19th century man named Jean Leroux, who uh, was gay, and he his ambition in life was to be a Catholic priest, and he got kicked out of seminary school. He was from Montreal in the mid-19th uh, uh, century, so 1840s, 50s. I can't think of it off the top of my head. He ended up uh, emigrating west, and... Um, becoming one of the most fluent Siksika speakers, or Blackfoot speakers, in the territories, um, partly because he kept getting running into problems with the Catholic clergy out here, uh, despite the fact that he wanted to be a priest, and uh, discovered that um, the Blackfoot didn't have the same sort of cultural prohibitions around sexual orientation and gender identity, so he found living in Siksika culture was more comfortable than living sort of in white culture and when Treaty 7 was being signed in 1877 um, the lieutenant governor at the time the sort of head magistrate tapped Sean on the shoulder to translate for the crown and he said no he's translating for the Indian chiefs which were his close personal friends and he did and so when um we actually had for Canada 150 we had the actual physical treaty Seven. It was in Calgary. It was at Fort Calgary. And uh, they have re- reproduction there now. But Jean LaRue, uh, his name is uh, on the treaty, and um, the Indian chiefs were uh, illiterate. They didn't speak or um, read French or English. And so he, Jean LaRue helped them sign X's to all their names. And, um, yeah, he, he had a very interesting uh, life and uh, so. So how, how how like
0: the 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 question I want to ask here, and this is going to sound weird, but how did you know he was gay? How how do you, like is it just there was stories written about him or a newspaper
1: article about the fact that he was openly homosexual? How well, so so there was a lot of scandal around him, okay, um, because he kept getting kicked out out of you know these Catholic. Uh, missions and things like that for having same-sex relations Uh, and so it's sort of like uh, not the criminal record but the sort of scandal sheet record of jean larue and another a, a complicating issue for historians talking about gay history at this time is gay identity didn't really exist in the way that we know it now. That was sort of a post-World War II thing. So men who had sex with men and women who had sex with women or people who presented different gender identities didn't really call themselves things. So um, (laughs) So I I can imagine that
0: even researching prior to 1949,
1: it's hard. Yeah. And uh, it's a lot in the criminal record, like, uh, you know, this person was a sodomite or this person was accused of gross indecency. And you kind of have to squint when you look at the historical record and try and, you know, read it with your sort of pink or lavender glasses on and see if you can sort of connect the dots a little bit. There's more gay stories I want to tell gay famous gay Canadians, but I can't find it. I have a good hunch, but I can't find any evidence yet of their sexual orientation or gender identity.
0: So I've got to ask the question then, is there a book two potentially coming out here?
1: (laughs) (laughs) The book one uh, took many many years longer than I thought it was going to take. Um, It it was a hard labor. Um, It was a labor of love, but it was a hard labor. So um, I'm not... I'm not even a year and a half past the publishing of this one, so I think I need some time, but potentially, potentially. I'm, I'm not sure where the history project is going to take me in the future, but i am sort of been bitten by this history bug. I think it'll, it'll, I'll be, have a relationship with um, queer history for the rest of my life, I suspect.
0: Now, the one area that uh, you talked about a little bit, but I want to dive into it and for a few minutes here, is the
1: gay walk that you do. Sure. How? Yeah, so that came about, came about because um, of Jane's walks. Um, someone I know at the Calgary Foundation said, you should do a gay history walk, and uh, it just sort of grew from there. There's, th- I've got three routes actually. There's a downtown walk, a Beltline walk, and I do one at the University of Calgary, which is also an important hotbed for gay rights activism over the decades. And I really like um, I like walking, uh, full stop. But I like also putting history into geography and I think people like it too going through the landscape and especially people who live live in the Beltline for example they're like oh then they have a different relationship with that corner or that library or that you know bar and um, it sort of makes it real in a different way when you can kind of see how the places interact like with this bar was here and that peer support organization was there and you can imagine how it all sort of functioned as a community so the walks are fairly popular and I enjoy doing them
0: so how, how long you've been doing them for a year now
1: well I think the first walk I did was 2014 okay 14 sorry yeah so uh, so years.
0: I'm assuming you're not doing them during the covid 19 situation
1: you know, funny, funny enough, James um, Calgary Foundation, which runs James Walks, asked me to. They were trying to do virtual James Walks, to, so I gave them some information, and I, we have a map. I've worked on a map, so and I can. I think I published it on the website, but people can sort of do their own self-directed k history tour of Calgary if they'd like to. Yeah.
0: So. The reason I ask is because I, I I didn't know about this until I started researching you and okay. I, I realized like I, I need to do this tour like it needs to happen so
1: well I'll I'll, get, I'll give you a special tour um, I will get you, I, I will
0: get Ricardo to come out as well yeah. he he, he will me. get the gay culture that he
1: desperately needs yeah yeah no I mean we can do a VIP tour because um, I enjoy doing them and it's especially on a pleasant summer evening it's just it's it's a really lovely way to. To your community, and is it is it all backgrounds that have given the that get
0: the tour? Like, do you get uh, people from their sixties, their seventies, uh, young,
1: old, uh, gay, yeah. straight? Huge mix of people. Um, uh, huge mix of people, um, and people are often surprised like about coming back to this idea that they don't know their history or, you know, when I tell the story of Everett Clippard, um, a lot of people are just stunned in Canada that gay people ever went to jail. Like it just blows their mind. They, they don't even know about that part of their history. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good thing to do and I enjoy doing it.
0: So with, uh, pride being September for Calgary, mm-hmm. um, is, uh, are you planning something? Is the Gay History Project uh, planning something special this year to virtually give back to the community, to keep telling those stories?
1: I work with Pride every year. Um, they usually they sponsor a Gay History Walk. And we've done, when Pride was 25, we did a um, sort of a panel discussion of, and I brought together some of the founders of the Pride organization to talk about what it was like Um, 25 years ago I guess we're in year 30 so that was five years ago Um, so yes I'll be working with I know all the people at Pride really well and uh, I think history sometimes um, can be done virtually and so I suspect there's going to be a role for us Uh, one of the history walks at one of the first ones we did at Pride we had we had so many people come out; it was crazy. There was 200 people that came on the walk, which made it sort of very unwieldy and not a very good history walk. I mean, you need smaller groups, but um, uh, we'll definitely be do We'll definitely be taking part of Pride.
0: Talking about Pride, you said it's been 30 years. Uh, you hear stories about that first Pride and uh, about men and women wearing uh, paper bags over their heads. Um, mm-hmm. Yet again. The reason for pride back 30 years ago was to get out and uh, be heard. Uh, I I get in trouble for saying this to my husband all the time, and he he hits me, and I'm probably going to get hit by you when I say this. (laughs) Do you think that today's youth have forgotten what pride is about?
1: Um... I don't know if it's the youth. I think it's um, Do you think? there's a, maybe a, a blindness in our generation too. Although I probably, I think I'm, maybe I'm older than you. Actually, now that I just said that, sorry to age you. Um,
0: my husband, my husband says as long as I have gray hair, he's younger than me. So <laughs>
1: okay, okay. Good. I, so.
0: I mean. The reason I, I ask is because we talk about we're, we're talking about history here. This is coming out in the same month that we have the pride. Usually Calgary has the pride parade. Um, we we are seeing it with the protests that are happening right now. People yeah. are angry. People are right. angry and they're pissed off. That's how it was for when Stonewall happened 50, Absolutely. 52 years ago, or 51 years ago. I I, I do not understand, and yet again, I'm going to get the hate mail, which I already did twice already for saying this. We are holding pride for a reason. Are we straying too far from that reason, or no? From your perspective.
1: No, I think... um... I actually think our human rights are fairly fragile and I think it's important that we gather to celebrate and and to remember the past and to remember you know those first prides were um, motivated at a time when um, gay and bisexual men were dying in huge numbers and they weren't getting proper health care and it was legal in Alberta to discriminate against LGBTQ2 folk. So you could lose your job or be fired um, and there'd be no recourse um, to those employers or landlords. And so it was a real, there was a lot of anger in the community and we needed to gather and and, um, show our strength. And I'm thinking about that in the current context of this week, you know, like people are, people, are demanding change, and uh, it's not a—it's a messy process. And uh, I'm grateful that I don't feel scared on the streets of 17th Avenue downtown Calgary uh, like I did as a young person in my 20s. Um, but I, I yeah, I, this, this is a sort of rambly answer, but I think. The root of pride is about social justice, and it's good to have debates about the level of corporate sponsorship and um, <coughs> and, and um, what it's all about and what's for and Have we got social justice for everyone in our community? yeah these questions are important to ask
0: when you talk when you talk to uh, founders of calgary pride um, yeah. Do do they look back on it and say I'm I'm happy
1: we did it? Oh yeah, I think they're very I think they're very proud of what they did. I think it took a lot of courage. And um, Stephen Locke, who was one of the founders, has this very cool expression. He says he during that whole period he has this he had had like a bruise the shape of a silver dollar on his shoulder for all the gay people that would like point and like say, don't do this, we're happy just the way we are, don't rock the boat. So it was it was only a handful of activists within the community who really pushed the social justice action forward. And a lot of people, and this is maybe typical of humans, just wanted to kind of like keep their heads down, they had their jobs, they don't ask, don't tell, we're good, you know? And so there was a lot of anger and vitriol directed by, from the community at our community activists for, like, standing up for themselves. So, which I think they're all grateful for now.
0: So that was in the nineteen early 1990s?
1: Yeah. So the, that first Pride Rally was 1990, and then the first parade was the year later in 91. They sort of expanded and got a little bit bigger.
0: So the rally, was it the first in Alberta?
1: Um Well, that's a very complicated question, but <laughs> Cal- Calgary Pride considers that their origin event. The very first, and Edmonton had a few um, pr- rally pride things before that, but Calgary hosted a national comp- gay rights conference in 1980, and they had a unsanctioned parade that
0: year as well okay so that's why it's a little complicated um you did mention edmonton uh during your research did you find more things about edmonton as well about the general population of alberta instead of just calgary that you weren't able to fit into this book that you wanted to but you weren't able to because you were trying to focus more on calgary
1: yeah i mean i did put a little bit of context about alberta and canada um to sort of paint the picture of what was going on in calgary like the and green story is a really important sort of edmonton-based human rights story that's in the book um and
0: for those who don't know that is the case oh, that right. the
1: employment case correct that's right. that's when um, uh, it became illegal to dis- discriminate based on sexual orientation in Canada. That was another su- Supreme Court case triggered by an Burton.
0: And that was uh, just recently too in the 90s. 98
1: 98 So we've just yeah 22 years ago in april so just we just had our yeah so it i remember the time before and the time after and the party that it was um in the gay bars that night when we won that supreme court victory because the alberta government was the most incalcitrant government in the country who was who was intervening in the case and against uh, against us basically and uh so Ralph Klein, who was premier at the time, was blustering about using the notwithstanding clause. And
0: Well, he was going to uh, use the notwithstanding clause against
1: same-sex marriage too, correct? Yeah, it, it was a total echo. Uh, and um, interestingly, I think, the legal arguments made in the Vriend case ended up being sort of the jurisprudence that uh, helped support same-sex marriage uh, in the courts um, later in the century, when the pr- provinces were starting to, you know... Go for same sex marriage before the federal uh, vote
0: so uh the verine case did you have a chance
1: to talk to him? Yes, I've met Dylan yeah he's uh but not in the context of the history project but uh the chinook fund which is a um LGBTQ2 Endowment Fund in Calgary through the Calgary Foundation does a Community Hero Award every year and they gave it to Dell in one year so I met him at that event and we had we talked a little bit about um, the history
0: and, that, and I, I gotta ask the question, did he tell you that he got the same thing that Steve, uh, Stephen Locke did? The poke in the arm from people saying you're doing too much, right. just stay home stay
1: relaxed and just keep your head down. There was a huge personal cost to him um so the the first court case I think started in 1992, and so then to get take it to the Supreme Court, you've gone that's seven years of your life in legal battles and not really working at the time and the community did a good job of fundraising for the legal defense fund, but he got a lot of hate mail, he his family got death threats he, and he was not someone who really wanted the media spotlight, but he was doing it for the principle of justice, that he felt his, it was unjust what had happened to him, and it was. Um, but once it all got resolved, he moved to Paris. Yeah. and um, I think he's a software developer, he does something in IT, and he just really wanted to get away from that chapter of his life. So in a way, it was a huge sacrifice he made for us. So.
0: Yeah, well, I I don't know what he went through, but I can tell you that uh, I was not fully in favor of making our my wedding to my husband public. But mm. with everything going on in the political landscape that was happening, we decided to. And the hate mail and the vicious attacks that we got from all... Areas of the province uh, made me think of what what other people had gone through to get to to allow me to even marry my husband. So uh, when you said hate mail, it sort of sparked that sort of reminder that you know what, while we went public with it, we really didn't do much compared to what other people had to go through to make us be able to allow us to marry. So
1: every 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 moment counts, though. I think those that's important and it's it's kind of you that you did I guess relent and and, and make it public and we should record I should record you and Ricardo's recollections because that's important queer history right here oh I can tell you right now that
0: walking down the street of Slave Lake Alberta and getting told you're going to hell you effing f, was not the most pleasant thing to hear the day after you announce your wedding to your husband
1: no no I can't I can't imagine
0: where do we go from here? how do we how do we keep the history alive? Is it through more books? Is it through conversations like this? Is it through walks? How do we engage with our youth and our uh seniors to ensure that the history of, of the past is not forgotten so we don't repeat it
1: Yeah, um I mean all of the above, I think. Uh, one of the sort of things that drives me the most that keeps me going in this project is getting these stories before they're gone. Like there's a sort of there's an expiry date uh, that's looming. And many a number a handful of people I've interviewed for the project have now passed away. And if I hadn't have gotten their stories they wouldn't exist and so i feel like there's a lot more stories out there that we (laughs) we need to preserve so preservation is sort of my number one agenda so that there actually can be future historians who can reflect and disseminate and share and educate um so
0: so in the last (laughs) question
1: That's my, that's my, what I'm doing right
0: now. No, but it's, it's good. And I want people to know that you, you weren't the only person on the gay, uh, the Calgary Gay Project, correct?
1: Correct. Yeah. No, a bunch of volunteers from the community uh, came out um, and uh, participated. They did some, a lot of, um, grunt work going through different archives you know taking all the calgary references out of the body politic for example or doing some yeoman's work going through old university of calgary gauntlets and transcribing interviews and so there's been a, a, a lot of people who've been very supportive of the project and very helpful and when the book wouldn't have gotten written without them
0: and what about what about the general public how what's the feedback you've gotten from the book so far
1: I've been, I mean, I've been more than honored uh, with um, positive feedback about the book. It went, it it shot up the bestsellers list uh, a few months after it opened, it, or was launched. It, I did my launch at the beautiful Calgary Library, downtown Calgary Library. In the first, I was the first historian in residence there, um, the inaugural one when it opened, and um, the book book. I just did a book tour. Uh, earlier this year in Central Canada. I I went to Edmonton and then um, Toronto, Ottawa, and it was really well received. And um, just last week I got informed, one of my Kickstarter backers who's a big fan of the book and a big fan of uh, the project, she entered me, um, she paid for my entry fee into some international book awards, Next Generation Independent Book Awards, and I just discovered this week I'm a finalist for their local history category or whatever.
0: I, I, I like how you're so chalant about it. It's like, you know, it's just an international award. It's okay. So <laughs> what?
1: <laughs> no, and so, I mean, for me, uh, I'm not one of these people that actually likes to be the front person. The, the I like to be behind the scenes, but I guess my activist thing is that I need this. I, I want these stories to be saved. And, and so... Uh, the
0: book is a vehicle for that well kevin i i appreciate that you write the, for writing the book um i would recommend it to anyone gay straight by anyone um who, uh, you can buy it in bookstores if i'm not mistaken correct i got yep. i got mine through amazon so I, I apologize for the people who don't want who want me to support local but with covid19 and everything else i bought through amazon um yep. How can people get in contact with you if they have questions or want to potentially give more feed or not feedback but tell their story about gay uh, history in Calgary? Oh.
1: Yeah, So um, you can just Google Calgary Gay History. It come, the uh, project website comes up right away, and uh, my contact information is on the website, my email address. And um, I'm still blogging. It started off sort of as a blog about uh, Calgary Gay History. I'm doing a lot of aid, work on AIDS right now because I think it's interesting to explore and contrast that pandemic with the one that we're living through right now. Um,
0: we didn't, and, I didn't
1: talk about that, but I'm going to ask the
0: question right now. Uh I, I would assume that uh AIDS made an impact here in Calgary. Did we have a death total of how many people died from AIDS in Calgary?
1: I don't have it off the top of my head, but it's more than um how many people have died in Alberta. Like hundreds and hundreds. Uh Calgary was like in the like the like in the COVID pandemic, Calgary's the hardest hit place in Alberta. And um um It wasn't until we got the antiretroviral drugs in '96 that things turned around. But it had that—it kind of had that, you know, exponential curve that we always talk about flattening.
0: Okay. But anyway, but uh, people contacting you—they can Google your uh, website, and you were talking about your blog about how it's sort of
1: a blog, but not a blog. It, well, it, uh, the the book idea originally, in a way, came out of the – I was doing these history snippets, these little vignettes, and then people started saying this should be a book. And so I've continued to do the history um, snippets, so maybe that's my second book. Eventually, if I have enough snippets, I'll put them all together and, and, and write a book. But people can get it in the independent bookstores in Calgary or online like you did.
0: Awesome. Kevin, I want to thank you very much for this. I will link the uh the website to yes. uh in the show notes so and our website as well. So thank you very much for doing this.
1: Well, I appreciate your interest, and uh, I look forward to interviewing you. So, turning the tables and getting the story about your wedding maybe recorded. Yeah, get,
0: get ready for the most uh, incoherent sentences ever, <laughs> because when it comes to microphones and me, it, they do like I. I'm a good interviewee because I can just interview her because I can just ask the question and then shut up for five minutes. <laughs>
1: Well, I'll have maybe do it with Ricardo and he can hold your hand or something like that. I mean, the two of you can uh, yeah. piece it together. Perfect. From the, fra- the fragment.
0: Yes, but for sure we will have to do that walk. I will get him to come out because he I, I've asked him and he only knows of like two areas in Calgary. So I'm like, dude, yeah. come on.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks
0: for Thanks. this. Thank you once again for listening to the Cross Border Interview Podcast. If you loved this episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast, head over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and subscribe, rate us, and leave us a review. All the links to our social media accounts are in the show notes or visit www.crossborderinterviews.ca. The Cross Border Interview Podcast was produced and edited by Miranda Brown and Associates Incorporated. Be sure to tune in next Saturday for our next Episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. Once again, thank you and see you next week. Whoa!